I tried to get rid of the fanfare on this, actually, mm -hmm. and put some some of the creepy sounds that were going to be under the titles under this, but until you have a big hit film, they don't let you mess around with the logo. Don't mess with Fox Searchlight. <laughs> Call this number. I'm Mark Romanic. I'm the writer and director of this movie. You're watching One Hour Photo, and going to try to talk about my experience directing the movie without sounding like a total egomaniacal asshole. may not be possible, but we'll do our best. I'm Robin Williams. I play Cy Parrish, photo technician, and you're looking at some of my early work. These titles were done by Imaginary Forces in Los Angeles. They did about 30 iterations of various title styles and designs, and we ended up going with this this look, which sort of uh, apes the inside of the processing machine, which you see later. Oh, good morning, Dave. Something about this mugshot camera just sort of sitting on the screen for a very, very long time before anything happens that I think the idea sort of is an echo of my love of Alan Pakula's All the President's Men, where the first shot of the white page and then the typewriter key comes smashing in. It's a pale reflection of that masterpiece film, but... There's probably a lot of echoes of all the movies that I grew up on in the 70s as a teenager and all throughout this film. This wasn't originally uh, the beginning of the movie as scripted. Originally we were talking about the red-eye effect. Yeah, there was an interesting sequence. But I, I sent the movie to, um, a rough cut of the movie, to Francis Coppola because I felt the first act of the movie was um, lacked a certain kind of energy or something. And I explained to him that we, I was having trouble because the film is sort of a thriller and it sort of isn't. And he emailed me back after he watched the movie. He said there's no such thing as sort of a thriller. And what he meant by that was it's okay to embrace the, you know, traditional aspects of a certain genre. He felt that we had done enough to make the film unusual. And so the idea of starting the film in this slightly more traditional way where we see that Sai has done something wrong but we don't know what it is it really energized the first act of the movie. And it wasn't Coppola's direct suggestion, but it led to this uh, restructuring. And I'm really grateful for him to take the time out of his schedule to watch the movie. And he sent me a long email with all sorts of comments and suggestions, which was really thrilling. Did he give you any idea for music or anything? No, I mean, I sent it to him, A, because I had access to someone like him, which was amazing. And uh, the film, you know, was very inspired by his film, The, the Conversation. But... He made, you know, a lot of positive comments. He made a couple of negative comments. He was very candid and honest. He said, I like this. I didn't like this. It's very, you know. It's great. He, he was raving about your performance. And he, he made the suggestion of restructuring the beginning of the film, which I think makes the first act of the movie a lot more interesting because I think it forces you to really pay attention to find out how it all got to that place. It's also interesting to see now with the, the leftover voiceover from initially being connected to the old snapshot and the old red-eye stuff. Mm -hmm. It has a certain disconnected, but, you know, it's almost like a, another state of mind. Well, the reason I cut that red-eye sequence, even though I really like it, is that it started the film out on this very cerebral, kind oh, yeah. of like a pseudo-Errol Morris film, mm -hmm. a cerebral kind of level. And I, and I liked it, but... When, I, when we previewed the movie, I found to my surprise and pleasure that the audiences were having like a very visceral, emotional engagement with the movie and that anything in the script that I thought was kind of academic or cerebral 
I felt it was really getting in the way of that. Right. And that's such a rare thing when you can get the audience involved on that level that I didn't want to have these like intellectual speed bumps. You know, I wanted people to remain engaged emotionally. So I denuded the film of a lot of some voiceover and some scenes that I thought were just kind of like idea based. Mm-hmm. And tried to keep some of it in there, but just get the right mix to keep people engaged emotionally. In Japan, the title of this movie will be Fuji, Fuji Photo. Fuji Photo. Fuji Photo Moment. Which will not make Agfa very happy. No, Agfa will be very upset, but Fuji paid for rights. Yes. Hi. You know, I was reading in the New York Times this morning on the plane that uh, there are these people that are considering digitally putting product placements in films. <laughs> they're, they're doing sanitized versions of films mm-hmm. to cut out nudity and any objectionable bits. Then at the end of the article, it said that they were considering digital product placement. Putting them in there without people knowing. Well, with people knowing, but without, you know, oh. approval. Big sign there. How many prints was that size? <laughs> Originally, there was a... She makes note of the fact that you you wrote down three prints, and but we... That makes her very much aware. Yeah, it makes her aware of the, the what you were doing, but we thought we'd just make it more... a little aside, visual aside. For those playing the home game. <laughs> I'm proud of the way the store looks. I mean, obviously the film is operating on a certain sort of stylization. It's not a naturalistic movie. Hopefully it doesn't go into the kind of cartoonish stylization. But I wanted the film to kind of feel like a dream of this story so that there was a chance that the film would sort of go directly into your right brain or into your subconscious and a lot of information was going to be conveyed in ways other than what you're actually watching in the text. So... The store was built from scratch. I mean, the the structure wasn't built from scratch, but it was an empty, uh, vacated office depot or Home Depot that there was just nothing in there. There was the tile on the floor, and that's it, pretty much. All the lights, the shelves, the one-hour photo area, the cash registers, all those fluorescent lights in the ceiling but also the, were installed by us. But the number of fluorescent lights is what gives it that hyper-lighting effect, too, that he added more lights than... Any normal Walmart, Save Mart, or any other place. Yeah. I wanted the store to have almost this sort of heavenly, glowing, abundant, perfect quality. Because it's where Sai is really in his element and where he feels comfortable, where he feels like he's in a certain amount of control. He's not real good with people, but he can interact with people as it relates to his work because he feels very confident in that arena. Uh, later in the film, when he loses his job, it's almost like he's kicked out of heaven, uh, his version of heaven. Oh, there we are. This is all the stuff I learned in the first week. How to cut film. How to enable film. How to load the cartridges. How to press and watch a button go from green and watch basically my own dialysis machine. There it is right now. I remember how proud you were the day you came in with this first <laughs> set of prints that you'd done <laughs> solo. You went, you flew solo on the machine. And, and She was very sweet. God, she was great. She would talk me through it. And she was very proud that her graduates really make great photos. And it's that idea of, you know, really quality control. And, you know, she told me stories of, you know, almost like Sai of bad prints and people who, you know, who don't know how to work the machine. Have you been reading their website at all? Because there are these, a whole section on real photo technicians writing in. Oh, really? About their experiences, which most of them are, you know, far exceed even oh. what's in this film. Oh, I know. And, uh, Everybody I talked to had talked about a wall of shame, but that they had always either sometimes put them on the side of the machine that people couldn't see, 
or had it in the back in the storeroom, photos that they duplicated of people, you know, of unusual things with pets. <laughs> I know one guy who said that he just uh, knew a guy, everybody knew a guy, that uh, had just had a photo album on his coffee table. And so when people came over for parties, it would just, you know, it'd be a conversation piece of flipping through people's weird, okay. perverse, strange moments. It's a lot of discussion about what the name of the store was going to be because you couldn't use a real name, obviously, and most of the believable names were all taken. I wanted it to have the word save in it because I do feel like Sai ultimately sort of saves this family from themselves. And we finally came up with Save Mart, and there was a, a regional uh, store in the south, I believe, called Save Mart, and they, they gave us their permission to use the name. This is Dylan Smith playing Jake, who's never acted before, never been in front of a camera, never had any special interest in being an actor, and just wonderfully natural, uh, really unaffected child performance. This is, I think, the very first scene we shot with him, the very oh, first great. scene he's ever done in a film. And just the way he fixes his hair here is just completely un... He just doesn't even seem to be aware that there's a camera running. This is fantastic. You had to fight to get him, though, which was... Um, had you won that fight. Yeah, I think that they, you know, the studio was really good on this film. They were very supportive, but they, they you know, they want to err on the side of energy and perkiness uh, with children, I think, sometimes too much. And mm -hmm. this kid was just very quiet and real. And he was meant to be a bit, you know, oversensitive, troubled kid. And empathic, which he is. Yeah. He's really amazing in his ability to kind of pick up on things visually. I love the look of this scene. It's really, we, we lit the whole store just with the lights that you see, and this scene is lit by just turning some of them off. Um, there's no real movie lighting in and of itself in the Save Mart. Even here, this just pretty much just uh, the natural lights that we gelled, this kind of greenish color. One journalist mentioned that it seemed like Cy was moving through developing fluid, <laughs> which I, I thought was great. I tried to make the colored temperatures outside of the store and, or when the store is closing or when he size not kind of on stage, so to speak, uh, working the counter. To, I wanted all the color temperatures in size life to be all off, go towards the green or the blue or the orange, whereas in the Jorgen's life, I just wanted it to be warm. So there's a lot of wood, and you'll see they're dressed mainly in earth tones and a lot of texture in their clothes where there is no uh, texture in size clothes. He's just wears these synthetic drab fabrics. I also like the fact that no one takes any pictures of Sai. No one really cares enough about him to take pictures, so here he has to take his picture of himself. There's a nice bit of trivia here. The, um, the fortune cookie says, someone wants you to be happy. Anal retentive that I am. I went through about 30 fortune cookies to find one that I thought related to the film. There's a funny story about that neon sign, but it might be a bit long to go into. And, the sign didn't work at all, so I asked them to fix the sign. Then they fixed it too well, and every single bulb was perfect. And I wanted everything. Yeah, like it looked like it had been around for a few well, years. Well, you know, so everything of size life outside of the store, I wanted to be a bit kind of drab and crappy and broken. And so it was getting to be twilight. We needed to shoot the sign, but it was too beautiful. So I grabbed a, a big tape measure, like uh -huh. a giant industrial-sized tape measure. And broke a few ones, lights. And I just hurled it at, it the, at the light because <laughs> we spent the money to fix it. And it landed perfectly and just broke it up. So it was sort of half working, half wasn't. And We have tape of that, I think. You know, behind the scenes the of destroying property. This is a real diner, too, because they were like, we got to shoot. But then uh, as soon as we were, it's like, that, thank you, we got to get out now. 
I really love this actress, Lee Garlington, who plays the waitress here because we, once again, just like the child actor, I, I you know, auditioned a lot of actresses playing waitresses, and they all did that kind of flow the waitress, exaggerated, cartoonish. Right. And this woman... Um, it's very mellow, very direct. Very real. You know, I wanted everything outside of size. This life in the store to be very drab. and Like we talked about how it was like... Um, an actor with it once the curtain's gone down it's like he has no part to play mm-hmm. the on and off is pretty vivid when he turns it off and just goes it's not even neutral it's almost like way down well, we can talk about the character and what attracted to you about uh, playing this role And I think the, the whole thing that got me going was the idea of playing someone so unlike myself someone so I mean there is a part of me that, that you know can be that quiet but that to make the the look and everything about it the total antithesis of what people perceive me to be. And that's what I think the good news is that people have said, you know, it really hits them as being someone so different. They, they forget they're watching Robin Williams, the big movie star, and they're just watching Cy the Photo Guy. With this scene with the boy, he, the reason this plays so beautifully is it's just so simple. And this is where, you know, his empathy comes across huge. Yeah that people actually think when they're watching the other side of the equation, when they see me, that some people make this kind of spiritual leap that somehow the boy is getting through to me. Mm-hmm. That when I take that kind of quiet moment, that's like that it's being reaching me. Well, I mean, I wanted to show before that, they're, you know, before they're connected in real world physical terms and tangible ways, mm-hmm. I wanted to show how connected these people are in this, you know, more ethereal way. Uh, on a spiritual level, they're, they're, these people are in each other's lives. They're in each other's thoughts and minds. Such a great thing that he's doing right now, just looking at that like a kid will do. Okay. And look at how he pays attention to her. He says, you know, he just really is listening. That's what yeah, that's any actor s- will tell you. That's the key. One yeah. of the keys is you got to really listen. And boy, he's just, he's not pretending to listen. No, he's, he's listening. He's listening like a kid who can do three things at once. And it's take that's take seven or eight. We did a lot of takes of this, and but he's just really, really listening. For those playing the home game, that's a Hoberman Sphere. Remember that for the people on the website, the Hoberman Sphere that he is holding. It expands. It's the Buckminster Fuller balloon. When we were shooting the scene in the kitchen, I was very struck by this image of you standing there. And I told you, just stand there for like 30 seconds. And I had no idea why I was telling you to do that. And it wasn't scripted that the good thoughts were going to be sent to you in that shot. It was the the order of shots was actually different, but mm-hmm. I was so struck by that image, that kind of image of you just standing there with this blank expression that I asked you to do it for a long time, and then we discovered in the editing it was that that's where you get the good thoughts. Yeah, it Pe- seems planned out, but it was. A, well, people pick up on that a lot from people who've talked to me about it. It's very tricky coming up with the production design for the size apartment. It, it's actually a small set we built on a, in a warehouse. We got the clothes pretty easily, and the clothes really defined him. But getting the the architecture was very hard for my production designer, Tom Foden, to come up with something that wasn't too interesting, that was believable, but wasn't over the top, like some sort of squalid, pathetic, dark place. It just needed to be bland and architecturally, you know, uninteresting, which is a big challenge, actually, if you think about it, to get it right, because you could really go too far in, in several directions. The crew made T-shirts that said uh, "18-hour photo" because the days were so long. This scene where the camera pans over and zooms in and refocuses on the photo, the assistant cameraman was so exhausted 
that he physically couldn't multitask to do that shot. And he had to ask another guy to come in and pull the focus because his eyes were shutting. Oh, my God. I think it's, that was like two days before Christmas, and it was like the end of an 18-hour day. <laughs> Look at this beautiful couple. There's Michael Vartan, Connie Nielsen, the in-style poster couple. I'm actually not that. I think the writing in this scene is pretty, pretty mediocre. It's largely because I think this scene was um, really just a plot device to to let the audience know that the that the family that Sai thinks is so perfect isn't really at all perfect or is a seemingly dysfunctional, just like most families are. And the fact that the audience knows this and Sai doesn't creates a certain amount of certain amount of suspense or tension that his image and the reality are different and that that's going to cause problems down the road. But because it's sort of a plot device and not a character-based idea, I think the writing is a little superficial. The acting is very good in the scene, and I think they're very good in it, but I think I let them down. So we know that they're, they've got dysfunction, and yet Sai's sitting here still with this impression of that they're just ideal. I use The Simpsons here because obviously it relates to the theme of the movie of some someone stalking or trying to kill this family. And I like the fact that The Simpsons are a family. But I wanted the audience to really laugh for the first time and really be distracted by laughing so that when we pan over to this, this revelation of uh, 1,000 photos on size wall that they'd be completely disarmed which seems to work. It hits people, uh, the first time they showed it, people literally, it was almost a near gasp where you get people just going, oh. <laughs> it hit people so hard the first time because they were going, oh no. Well, it's such a violation. One of the things I like about the music and the scene is that it's not just creepy. Certainly it's very creepy, but the, the orderliness of it is creepy and the fact that there's so much love in these pictures and there's a, obviously sight has a love for this family so that there's more going on than just that's this is just a creepy violation there's a romantic strain running through it that makes it hopefully a little less one-dimensional than just creepy Kalina Rentmeester took I'd say 90% of the snapshots in the film and really did it with a great style for looking like snapshots yeah really good snapshots because the film is you know a little bit heightened heightened reality mm -hmm. but you know good snapshots but believable but um, the, the ordeal of generating 10 years of a family's uh, life as snapshots was, you know, a big project unto itself. There was a 10-day pre-shoot on the production, which involved hair, makeup, wardrobe, location scouting. We needed Jake as a young boy and Jake as a baby and even the Weimaraner dog. Tried to create a lot of frames in the film of things framed by other things. So you'll see that continually in the movie. This is another example of it where real life is framed like a photograph. The squeaking shoes is a whole other thing, too. <laughs> People complimented me. I went, thank you very much. We worked really hard on the sound. There's like three layers of, uh, of Foley work done to get the right squeak, and I like that it's so emasculating. <laughs> People were like... It's so nerdy. This part was wonderful because you got all these different people. And it really kind of gives a, relates to the, you know, the photo text would say that, you know, everyone had their stories of their customers and, you know, the, the variety of weird photos that they see in a given day. Yeah. Well, I also like that you've just seen something really disturbing and creepy, and now the film is kind of light and amusing. And what I like about that, that's the 
producer's daughter, Georgia, <laughs> making her debut in a feature film. Adorable baby. But I like that, you know, something really creepy just happened, and now the film's kind of light and amusing. And what I like about that is that the audience just has no idea where this movie's really going to go because it's going in different directions, and now it's amusing before, you know. I love this actor, Jim Rash, who plays the amateur porn guy because his reaction at the end is terrific. Just wants to get out of there as fast as possible. You did some funny ad-libbing on the set for that scene, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't appropriate you, to yeah. use. Shall I push? Do you like a little more blue? A little more pink, I think A little more said, pink, yes. yeah. Would you like the photos a little more pink? I like that the machine here just looks like it's been, you know, vivisected. Yeah. This is Nick Searcy, who's a fantastic character actor who was unbelievably gracious in coming in and doing a one-day role for us because he's, he's way beyond that. But... Uh, I wanted to cast someone also who was really physically imposing to Psy, too. This guy looks like he could just rip you apart. Oh, yeah, that he would snap and just beat the shit out of me, and that'd be it. Thank you. But so it's a lot for Psy to stand up to him. There's, there was a really interesting you know, thing that you came up with here, I think, about will Psy venture beyond the safety of his little island, and will he actually open that door and step outside of his safe area? Of course, he, he, he waits to do it until after Larry's of, left. The ultimate passive-aggressive. <laughs> but I thought it was a great idea, actually, that, you know. And the lunchroom. There were a couple of other fantasy scenes like this scripted, but it seemed, we, I think we had three of them in the script, but just one seemed enough, really. Yeah, I think that's about what the audience would bear in terms of what they would tolerate. It establishes that he's living inside their photos, and you don't need to do it two or three times. This is also weird. It looks like a 3D photograph. And I like that Sai seems to literally be traveling into the three-dimensional space of these two-dimensional photographs. It's got that much dimension to him and his life. They're not just flat objects. There is a whole world in there that he can imagine himself in. <laughs> it's so goofy Look, It's goofy. That This particular shot was shot months after the rest of the scene. We needed this angle. and It's amazing how you can cheat stuff in there it's also you know you you slipping into the back again back again so easily most of the signage in this room is all taken verbatim the check your smile mirror is something that i saw in doing my research all these other signs are all taken verbatim from other you know chain stores of this type so we tried to not really make a lot of stuff up we tried to just pull the absurd things we found in reality MVP wall in the back. Employee of the month. Most of the MVPs back there are the shots of the crew. Crew people. The guy in the middle is our production coordinator, Andrew Blau, the MVP. Most valuable player that day. Kalina, the, the still photographer, was the center uh, top there above Andrew. Tom Foden, the production designer, is in there somewhere, but I think he didn't make the cut. This is basically like talking about the Louvre to a blind man. Yeah, and I always loved it. I wish we had almost had an image of Cy, you know, with a pina colada. Yeah. <laughs> he can't even imagine Cy on a vacation. Yeah, trying to pick up a girl in a bar. Yeah, or laying on a chaise on the beach. Yeah. I mean, with a, totally uncomfortable. I just, you just can't imagine this man taking a vacation. It's just an alien concept. That noise was dubbed in by two hours of Foley. This is one of my favorite scenes, actually. There's everything. This is the joy for me of... Robin doing this this film and Michael and the lines coming out just exactly as I heard them in my head. The scene looks exactly how I pictured it. I'm, you know, thrilled with the 
by the abundance on the shelves and the lighting and the fact that the photo counter is back there in the background and the acting in the scene is just so subtle. Everybody's walking this tightrope so beautifully between creepiness and sincerity and Michael's playing the scene like half I'm appalled and half I should probably be nice to this guy. You know, it's just beautifully done. It's that people have that moment of the uncomfortable thing of someone stepping over the line for a millisecond and then going, okay, thank you very much. But Michael doesn't overplay it. Either. No. It's like, cause he does a very human response of thank you and kind of this is unusual and I've got to get on with my business. Yes, we're, we're, on, we're pushing the sharing envelope here. Yeah. T-M-I. There's another frame within a frame. We tried to make all those frames the ratio of a snapshot, too. Wow. Four by six. I love that moment when you do the announcement over the store. It's like your little bit of a power play. You're the voice of God just for a second. <laughs> yeah, like Bob, price check on prunes. We had a fun time with the other announcements in the film. I was pretty crazy about making them all. All the names you hear are names of photographers. Oh. You can hardly hear it, but it's sort of like... <laughs> Ansel, you know, pick up line four, like Ansel and Deanne for Deanne Arbus. Like all the, everything's photography related if you pay attention. We tried to make it complete in that way. Steichen, line two. We did that though. We did a Walker, like Walker Evans, Walker, pick, you know, price check. Why not, you know? There's a, there's a guy going, well, messed that one up pretty good. For anime fans, a very, very famous Japanese anime. I picked this this particular toy because I liked that it was it seemed like this sort of white avenging angel, um, good angel. And later in the film, you see its wings are spread out, and he's got this big sword, which is very similar to the hunting knife that Sai gets later. So it ends up being an attempt to connect with the boy, but later it sort of inspires Sai to act. It's a point of view shot there, very specifically. I tried to limit the point of view to be strictly size so that you have this uncomfortable sense that you're inside of the head of the guy that's the threat in the film, which puts the audience, I think, in a really weird, uncomfortable place. It's sort of the opposite of what you're supposed to do. In Hitchcock, you're really supposed to be associating more with the victim, which creates more suspense. But here I was trying to make it more morally complicated and weird for the audience. Here we see that he's, he's bought a copy of Deepak Chopra book because he saw it in Nina's bag. He's trying to connect with them even when he's not involved with their lives. He's trying to stay connected. It's not the kind of book one imagines Sai might be drawn to. For me, this is the most kind of telling scene just in terms of the voiceover because of that, that one line that's coming up about what snapshots and what photos are. And for me, also looking at these old pictures that day was quite... Enlightening. There's one you didn't use, which was a little girl in blackface from the 20s. Yeah. Which was the Jolson birthday party, but you know. There's some strange stuff, oh. but there's something sad about all these discarded memories that are just sold for cheap. And you go to a flea market and you can find them. There's some interesting cameos here I can talk about. I think that's uh, a relation of the prop guy. This woman, I don't know who it is, but um, that's me. This is my cameo. Oh. That's me. That's Justine Halliday, who's our first assistant editor. There's Sparky the Wonder Dog. Those are my parents. That's Marvin and Shirley. It's <laughs> my Aunt Eileen. It's true, though. <laughs> this is great. Oh. And this woman is, we don't know who this woman is. Martha Stewart. 
No. You said this was this scene was one of the things that made you decide to do the film, I think. Yeah, just because it talks about snapshots and the idea that someone cared enough about you to take your picture. It's very personal that someone cared enough about me to take my picture. I exist. And when I look back, you know, as a family, we didn't take that many, but when you see them, they really are like a captured moment of time and very personal. Very intimate, especially, yeah, family photos. Are and, and very intimate, intimate and very powerful, and that's why when you see the wall of photographs and you see that someone else has them, it is a violation in a weird way that someone has, you know, picked your past and kind of, you know, has it when they shouldn't. I think people don't appreciate that how what a sort of a voodoo power images have. They yeah. really they they have much more power than just the content of the picture. They they you know, it's maybe, important to I always surround myself with a lot of images and really well, for in every projects. culture they're there and also literally that thing of you know in many cultures they won't let you take the picture because they believe it steals a part of them. Yeah, which in a weird way you could say yeah maybe so that fraction that moment is now captured. But as well, the image itself, once it exists as an object, I think mm. has a power over the people you, that see the, it. Right. When I wrote the script originally, the scene was meant to be literal. Cy really broke into their house. And um, a couple of my friends that read the script, David Fincher was one of them, he said, I don't really like the fact that Cy breaks the law that overtly. And I said, yeah, but it's such a great scene. I don't want to cut the scene, but... And then it occurred to me the solution, the way to have my cake and eat it too, was that to have the scene, but then reveal at the end that it's all just in his in his head, and he never really did go into the house. I think it keeps the audience once again off guard too. This one, <laughs> this, this scene gets, gets people a, big. This la makes people laugh, and then they go, "Oh!" But they're very disturbed. But it's yeah. the it's the violation. It's like the old, you know, the public myth of the family whose camera is stolen. And the next shot is of the burglar with the toothbrush in his ass, <laughs> <laughs> like going, "Oh no." They left a duty in the punch bowl, Dad. <laughs> this is the ultimate kind of violation of your personal space. Someone leaves a resume. The thing that's interesting is that he's physically, generally speaking, for most of the film, he's like passive, but he's so active in his mind. You can't say that he's in, he's he's a passive character because this fantasy life is so is so rich. And vivid. Yeah. yeah. This is Aaron Daniels who plays Maya. This is sort of Psy kind of being kind of suave here. Yeah, like as close to flirtatious as he can go. Do you come here often? <laughs> I've seen you in a thong. <laughs> a little backed up today? <laughs> yeah. It'll be hard to get it to you before. Wait a minute. Wait, Miss, can I? flick the pen one more time, it'd be Freudian. Yeah, but you know what? I was just going to say, I mean, your your use of, your handling of all the accoutrement, the, like the, the envelopes and the pen and the... You really just inhabited this character in so many details, technically. It's oh, really... boys now. This was an awkward day, too, because this was a kind of a scene that really starts to get people very worried when they see me in the stands. Especially coming right up there, then it's like, I love that shot. Ooh. See, it's like, a, I like that image, it's really amusing, but it, it's very disturbing. Yeah, they laugh funny. and go, ha ha, oh my god, he's at the game, what's that mean? 
There's been so much uh, reporting in the press about missing children and abducted children just when the film came out. I mean, oh, yeah, they tried to associate that with this, and when it didn't, I mean, it kind of started to look like it was going. You could see people get literally very uncomfortable, and then, you'll see, it takes it a, a different way. We shot this with three cameras. We shot this whole scene kind of simultaneously just because any time I was working with Dylan, you know, our time was limited, but also it just he was so natural and... I just wanted to make sure I really captured the stuff that he was doing naturally. Like I love the way he just popped that drink bottle closed. It's just so unaffected and and natural. Do you like gladiator movies to me? We had guys on a cherry picker dropping leaves. I was trying to make this as idyllic as possible because what's going on is so creepy. I thought it was just visually idyllic. Yeah. Oh, there's an interesting story here, actually, about the shoe tying. Mm-hmm. which um, Found it, in rehearsal. Yeah, we were rehearsing. You can tell the story. Yeah. Well, basically, you know, we found we're kind of doing these things about Cy, kind of rehearsing. I was working with him, and then he was wearing these shoes at a time. Just at a moment when the scene starts, to, it's starting to get more and more intimate than and. I kneel down to tie his shoe, and people start to go, uh-oh, what's next? I saw that image of Cy kneeling to tie the shoe and in the rehearsals, and it just struck me as a very powerful, creepy image. Any movement towards towards him at this point is going to... Well, it's like a su- weird supplication. It just, it just something clicks in this image right here. So I staged the entire scene to be walking towards this dark cove so that when that moment happened, it would be in the silhouette. Um, to etch it even more strongly. So I didn't originally plan to have them go to that sort of dark, wooded area, but it makes it creepier. I got you something. Another frame there. Oh. He knows, and I love that reaction. It's like the boy really wants this, but his instinct tells him it's not the correct thing to accept it. We're both so good in the scene. You see you around the store. Okay. I love this image of you all alone there under the tree. The light was so beautiful on that day. Here comes the next part. Sigh out in the world. <laughs> the studio wasn't that thrilled with the big Warner Brothers logo behind yeah, you it's there. It's like, whoops, too it's bad. Just, just the way the escalator the was. Game. Hey, look who's there. I was proud of the amount of extras we managed to have in the scene in our limited budget. Oh, Makes it look like people. a real mall. A lot of discussion with Jeff Ford, my editor, and, and myself about the, you know, choice of music. It's amazing how many different types of, kind of banal, smooth, jazzy kind of music you can play in these scenes, and it's incredible how one song just clicks and is just the perfect accompaniment to the scene, and other songs just are distracting or. Mm-hmm. A lot of trial and error with the music in the Save Mart, and it's also weird now because maybe just as you get older, you start to hear all along the Watchtower played by the in strings, and you go, "Oh no, it's Jimi Hendrix in the mall." You guys couldn't wait to play this scene because it's that kind of it's that wonderful mist signals combined with her starting to realize. You're just both fantastic in this scene, but you. It's it's a really meaty scene because most of the scenes in the film, everything's really in the subtext, and it's not so much the dialogue. The dialogue's kind of banal about, you know, how many prints do you want and nice to see you today. But this is this scene actually has some 
text meat in it. You know, it actually has some something really specific for the first time towards the end of the scene. Sai's so devious and complicated in the way that he's sort of he's trying to ease himself in, just casually taking out the book. You're really exposing yourself here a bit too because it's the first time you take your glasses off in the film, which I think are a bit of a protective, defining feature of the character. We never meant to belittle Deepak Chopra, actually. I mean, I think he's, you know, he's a sort of populist, uh, new age guy, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of interesting ideas in his writing. He's sort of, that quote is meant to be sincere. It's an interesting quote, I think, and it speaks in interesting ways to, to what's going on in the film. Poor guy has to invent an alternate family for himself because the real one is just too horrifying for him to deal with. She looks very nice. She's passed away. <laughs> we tried a couple of takes, so I just went, she's dead. She's dead, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you did, we had like 15 choices on the way you said that line. Yeah. It's like so he's forced to think of something to go, where is she now? Uh, you know. Oh, dead. I could have made, you know, 15 versions of Sai. I mean, you're the type of actor that really presents presents the director in the editing room with a lot of choices. And an editor's worst nightmare. Damn it, man, you bring me so many. It's an editor's dream. It's just uh, it oh, took okay. us 13 months to cut the film. <laughs> oh, Largely because it's a very delicate balance yeah. with this character. Sai feels like he's been given a little bit of uh, a little bit of a con real connection there, and that sort of sends him into the next part of the movie where he feels like he really made a real connection. It's based on lies, but mm -hmm. he made I think a, this is the part in his life, too, where he's starting to make the move because of feeling, you know, that there's something there that he can go to the next level. Yeah, he got a little encouragement. He looks like a mortician here, I really. It's really creepy. This is a real thing. You're, 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 silver recovery. You recover the silver from the developing fluid. That's why you have to wear all the hazmat gear and all that stuff to go with it. Most of the guys don't, although they should, but yeah. I thought it was visually a lot more striking. <laughs> yeah, most of the guys just go out and dump it and like get into the machine, fine. It puts a twist on the, uh, the, the scene coming up where you're just in this odd getup. I like that there's like this sort of terms that you know, aren't explained. It's just technical stuff, you know. I don't like when they explain it. Tech talk, it. yeah, you don't need to explain it. Two, two photo technicians going, I like that part, thank you. We've gotten pretty much thumbs up from the real photo clerk saying that we did a pretty accurate job. Oh, yeah. I remember there was an article early on that said it was 98.9% accurate. I went, oh, thank you. That's a good a good percentage. Someone said, oh, you wouldn't say blue. You'd only say cyan. But right. you say cyan later. Now, this was one of those days. There were like two days on the set where... You stopped joking around because you joked around a lot between takes because it really, I think, it seemed like it was just blowing off a lot of comedic energy that you just have naturally and you needed to expend it. Mm -hmm. um, but this scene, this was a day when you were, you were, I think you put a certain kind of pressure on yourself. Yeah, I think sometimes you have a dramatic scene where you want to deliver any kind of help when you said just to blow it out and then all of a sudden you, you, you come back to that kind of relaxed state even though there's an emotional payoff to this scene which is very intense, you know, getting this kind of, for him, horrific news of being let go. And I think you took the pressure off, which was great, by saying, you know, let it go. The I mean, more relaxed you were, the more amazing the performance was, I think. Yeah, I think that was the thing I learned most of all, especially when I would become, like, Method Man, where I think that day and then the final scene where 
in the interrogation room where you feel like you have to do something very, you know, deliver something, when in reality is you, if you're in it and you kind of allow it to happen, it'll be something more interesting than anything you could plan. Well, you're so good also at knowing your lines because it's like you had them so down that you were able to move so beyond even worrying about that, you know, I mean, into mm -hmm. way, way higher levels of, like, worrying about the lines. It's just astonishing. But, you know, the pressure that you put on yourself on this day, I think, really helped the second half of the scene mm -hmm. because it's just astonishing what you're doing in the second half, and I think it's informed a little bit by... Because I, I wouldn't say you were nervous, but you just were made yourself mm -hmm. put this... You know, the scene seemed too important to you. And so, right. The first half, I think, would have been helpful, I think, if you were in that more relaxed state, because you're not expecting to be fired. Right. But, you know, we got there. It was just a tough day. Usually it just came very, very easily. You talked about how once you got the wardrobe on and the vest in particular, you immediately kind of got a, suddenly got kind of um, repressed and tightened up. From just the vest might have helped. You don't like to wear ties either, and that really... That well, it tightens you up. Yeah. <laughs> Gets you going. It's all—it's a uniform, but for him, it's like uniform slash armor that can be. You know, yeah. there is that thing of when he's in that, there's a certain comfort. Yeah, it's the uh, costume. Of, you know, he plays this role very well of saw the photo guy, but outside of that, he's very uh, socially awkward. I like this point of view shot here. It's brief, but. No, I, in all, almost all the scenes in the in the store in the counter, I used a lot of very wide-angle lenses because so I felt very much at home in this world, and the world seems open and abundant. But now, shockingly, I think this scene is played in long telephoto lenses for the first and only time in the store, and it makes the scene very different because his world has changed. He's he's lost his job, and his job is everything to him. So the whole scene is played in tight close-ups, which I, I like it this way. If you cut to a wide shot, all the tension just flew away. There used to be a line there. Yeah, it was like a... Was like a budding, a budding Steichen or something. Yeah, or a budding, budding Arbus. Yeah. But I think it made it too hip and also it would be bring you out of it because at this point it's pretty bleak. And pretty, he's disconnected. And well, there's another moment of it. It was like a little intellectual thing that would have taken you out of the emotion of the scene. Mm -hmm. And that look is so uh, much more disturbing. It's one of my favorite shots coming up in the whole film. It's the only time we cut away to a wider shot, but right, right here. I love that image with the machine going in the background. And I love the composition of it, and I love the music here. The music that Reinhold uh, Heil and Johnny Klimek composed for the film, I'm just thrilled with because it's it's very beautiful and romantic and yet very disturbing and very modern. I wanted a strong melody. I like films where you remember the melody of the theme of the film. You talked about how the character, this character was like steam building up with like bolts popping and yeah, and you would bring that up as an image to kind of, especially when things start to fall apart, to try and hold it in as much as you can, but then, like you said, a crack or a seam and different things breaking down. And when his world starts to collapse, and even looking at these, this is basically, once again, like him looking at a 
the pictures of the child's photographs, and for him it's like light from a distant star. He doesn't. Un- it's such a state of innocence mm. that he never had, and it's in a weird thing. It's kind of breaking through to him in a weird way. It's like there's something so beautiful, and you know, kids. You know, when I see my own son's pictures, sometimes when he does use it, they're they're, they're shot from any way they can. They yeah. hold the camera. They don't look even look through the lens. They just kind of. Take it's the light combined with that looks cool, and they they get wonderful weird angles like these. Yeah, these are a little overly wonderful. But, yeah, you know, I mean, my my nephew takes photographs, and they're extremely similar to these. They were sort of inspired by some pictures he took, and uh, they look almost accidental. But it's also those images represent all the color and the connection to that family that now he's lost. It's over. It's been dis- He's been cut off from that umbilical to the family. And now I was going for the association with, you know, some weird memory of that woman that I know you, you know? Yeah. As a, and as someone as compulsive as he was, you know, can literally go, wait a minute, and would vaguely know even the area where he may have seen her, you know? Yeah, but, you know, one or two people said, you know, wow, would Cy remember something that specific? And I'll tell you, the guys that helped build this wall of the thousand photos. Would remember every detail. They knew every detail of the wall, and they'd only worked on it for, you know, a week or two. Mm-hmm. Sai's been working on this wall for nine years. For so. him, it's like a mosaic that he knows every stone. I love that there's a few images of Sai just faceless, where his face is kind of blocked or obliterated, and that image of him behind the magnifying glass is similar. We, we played around with that a little digitally just to make it even more, erase his face and blur it even more, just slightly. I think the lighting in this scene coming up that Jeff Cronenweth uh, did here is just very beautiful. Fade runner. <laughs> yeah, Jeff's father, Jordan, is an amazing cinematographer who shot Blade Runner. And this is only Jeff's second feature film. His first film was Fight Club. Serious? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, he's worked with Fincher and I on many, many videos over the years. And God, man, he's got a great future on that. Oh, yeah. He, no one has any question about it. He's got it in the genes. His, his dad pics, was great. The pictures of her are so sexy. This and they're kind of like, you know, you know, uh-oh, and here it is. Oops. I love that image. There's a commitment in your eyes and in, in the performance in this film that's impossible to fake. It's just... Th- great gift for me as a first-time director essentially to be working with someone of this at this level is just such an education at this point we've kind of switched around and gone into the kind of everything's starting to fall apart now kind of heading towards bottom it's the basically this is just the worst you know the worst two weeks in this guy's life where everything is everything crumbles that he had built for nine or ten years or been probably building this whole life. And the room he's in now is like a, the old developing room. I mean, like with fluids and that light, it's like almost like a, a dark room, except you'd made it out of an old closet, right? Or, it was just a little set we built. Right. In the, but using that dark room light. That yeah, the use of color red is pretty, is pretty specific in the movie. There's a nightmare sequence that comes up, and it was going to originally tie in with this whole explanation of the red eye, the red eye sequence... Uh, that's not in the film anymore, but the use of the color red was meant to really, as in a lot of films, was meant to signal. Uh, the number 86 there is on purpose because he's, so he's been fired. 
It's been 86. <laughs> the, the script supervisor, Jane Ann, used to say, okay, what number do you want up there? And generally, I just pick a random number. But in this scene, she said, what number? And I said, what? 86. Yeah, he's gone. There's Paul You're Kim there playing Yoshi. Let the place go downhill, okay? this, is a, this is a nice kind of shot, the Steadicam shot. We did about 19 takes of this. Also, I like the way the Muzak starts to kind of deconstruct and separate and fall apart, and then it kind of merges into the score music. There's a great arc here from when you're just sort of a little bit bemused by by Yoshi saying goodbye, and then you start to... The reality that you're walking out of the store for the last time really hits you. You have these burning buildings on the televisions back there. It's like... I remember when I told the set dressers the extent of this shot and how much they were going to have to dress. I know, it becomes like, oh. They were, you're kidding, right? <laughs> no, no, that's the shot. This is what it is, ladies and gentlemen. It's the same um, good thoughts tone that they sent him before reappears on the score. It's almost like, well, maybe this is where the good thoughts come to their fruition. Because we obviously we, we think this is a hor horrifying thing that he's doing, getting this knife. Initially, when we did this, you were talking about leaving it vague, whether you didn't know whether what, what it oh, was yeah. he was reaching for, whether it could be a gun, and if you didn't... It's too vague. Too vague, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, having this knowledge creates an enormous amount of tension, knowing specifically what he has. Because a knife is a very primal thing, too. It's an ugly, you know, a knife that big is an ugly thing, you know? Yeah, I never wanted it to be a gun. It didn't seem like sign. They, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easily accessible to him. Yeah. I always wanted to do that shot because you always see those scenes in films where they take out the rearview mirror and it's really fake. Mm -hmm. And they take it out because it's usually in the way. So I just figured, well, just have it be in the way. Well, let's make it. Have it block his face again like he's Here the, comes the phallic lens. Oh! I, I literally, I did tell them to get me the longest, give most me, absurdly extensive. Yeah, give me the Freudian lens. Okay, yeah. This is always a weird moment when you come to this. I'm like, the horsey. Well, I don't know. It's like, uh, you know, these these things are meant to be ambiguous. I don't really want to explain them away. Well, but no, you don't have to. I just think it... It's something that you'd find in front of those stores, and I thought it just reminds him once again that he's like the, the guy that's going to come in and save the day on mm -hmm. horseback, you know. But it's also one, another thing that, you know, it's, it could have shot it anyway, but I framed it. Like a picture. Again, like the framed by something else. Tried to find a stretch of road here without, you know, we shot the whole film around Los Angeles, but I didn't want it to look like Los Angeles, so it was really hard to find a stretch of road that looked Midwestern without palm trees. So Cy slipped this incriminating infidelity picture in with Jake's snapshots that he took. He's just trying to wake this family up, you know, get them on the, see what's going on. This is the one exception where there's a point of view shot from someone besides Sai, but there's still a sense, there's this awareness that Jake has about Sai. He, he may not even know that that's Sai's car, but you're very focused on this day because it's shooting car stuff is really distracting, and you're very con your concentration is amazing. You can't even see where you're going, you know. I mean, <laughs> you're, but you're. Oh, there's enough to work with because it's once again he's in kind of righteous mode, you know, that kind of thing that it's you're locked off in a mission. Well, this 
Go ahead. Well, this part is also with him observing them through the cameras, just hoping for some sign that, you know, what's wrong with these people? Yeah, that gets a laugh. Coming from... One of the strangest, most fucked up characters we've seen in a long time. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with this family? But it's a great, it's a yeah. great irony. It's great that it's funny, but it's funny in a very messed up way. He's just trying to get get them to see what he sees is that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Some people wonder why, you know, Nina doesn't confront Will with it there, but the child is there, and mm-hmm. we find out later she actually is more complicated than we thought. She already knows about the affair, and she's dealing with it in her own way. Maybe right. she's in a state of denial about it. I always love this film. Me too. It's a very smart movie. Subtle movie. This guy's performance is incredible. I can't remember his name. God. Klaatu. We called this the Rockwell shot because there's a famous painting by Rockwell of a businessman standing in front of a Jackson Pollock in that same way. This is Cy, you know, looking at the wall, going, "Can I hang on to this anymore?" Uh, you know, this is there's a lie, and I've seen this lie. This hits people very hard. <laughs> Well, it's a real sucker punch because there isn't any real gore in the movie, so they're not expecting anything like this. But I wanted to show how much rage, you know, among other things, I wanted to show how much rage this character is repressing, that this is this volcano of rage. <laughs> really makes the audience jump. And, I, and it almost scares them too much because I think they miss the point of the scene it's just so visceral the shock of it so that's the toy that he wanted to give to Jake and now it's like wings are unfolding. this part here is also something that you said was when you did some of the research they said a lot of times with people vengeful that they will scratch out the object Mm-hmm. to try and remove, literally that's also warning signs when they get from stalkers or pictures with scratched out faces and very, very horrible. And once again, it's almost like voodoo again, yeah. trying to remove the object by destroying its image, you know? Remove the person or, you know, somehow harming. Well, Sai's not very good at relating to the actual three-dimensional physical people, but he, he can only really deal with them as... That's the picture. The picture of the people. They, he's good with objects and machinery, but not so good with the actual people. This definition of snapshot is, is true. Correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically shooting from the hip without aiming, just yeah. basically going, it's called instinctual shooting. Well, this is one of my favorite details. I, th- I find this one of the creepiest things of all for some reason. <laughs> I know, it's like you know, personalized underwear. Wait a minute. Well, I thought of all the other things you can do, like the coffee mugs. I mean, there's so many things you can put pictures on now, but it's endless. How many things of those I could have added? Here comes my favorite shot in the movie, right? And now, welcome. He's back. There is a problem in the store, size home. This time, watch out, boys and girls, because Uncle Size not in a good way. Here's Seymour. Seymour. <laughs> Just dropping off some film. You cannot stop me. 
There are some very funny outtakes of this scene. Yeah. You were starting to lose it for some reason on this tape. I don't know. It's tired. Started talking about how you have a ferret in this bag. Remember this? <laughs> yeah, I have a ferret in this bag, and I'm not afraid to let it go, Phil. Just walk away. I know this is really obscure, but the numbers lead like five, four, three, two, one. Mm-hmm. Size zero. Oops. Just this one time. I know my rights, and my rights say I can be within 10 yards of you. I wonder what if that's true, though. I didn't bother to look that up if, you're, if you've been fired from a place, if there's, there's nothing that stops you from being allowed to go back in there. I don't know. Well, sure. unarmed. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of places now have a hardcore policy about checking out former employees coming back. It's been... Oops. Undoing a zipper. You worked with those soda and straws very, very effectively. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's a moment of... You look like what, a 10-year-old. When yeah, you're... how you doing? Just, you know, orally fixated. Yeah, well, drive, drive off in your boxster. There's something a little, uh, you know, infantile about Sai. He's sort of st- stuck in... He's, he's trapped in a certain age bracket. This is one of the more disturbing ones, too, because you realize, once again... Even implied, implied violence from these pictures is more more disturbing than anything. Else. A lot of people are very creeped out by this. Well, this is yeah. When you're dealing with children, that's when you really the you're alarms in, go off. Oh, huge! And he knew that. I think Sai knew that. He's creating a. Then it becomes like diversion. a flip book. The fact that the pictures just get closer, closer, yeah. closer. There, there it is the flip book effect. It's just like, oh no. I know where you live, I know how you're vulnerable, and here it is. The Edgerton Hotel, it's another photographer name. A lot of the characters in the film are photographers. Outer Bridge, Vanderzee, Serrano Terrace is the Yorkin's address. uh, Serrano is a photographer, Andre Serrano. Little trivia. Mr. Delgado. I think Eric does a really good job of doing an uncliche detective, you know? I mean, people yeah. have such a strong image and memory of him from ER. Right. But I wanted him to be kind of fatherly and paternal. I mean, later in the film, he, he, he you know, draws out this uh, confession from Sai, and I think the only way he really could do it is by being the only kind of father figure in the film that actually seems like he wants to understand Sai. Right. With Eric, especially because it is, like I said, you're dealing with an authority figure, but he has, you know, there's that kind of a, you know, I set the rules, this is what's up, and then I find in him at least, like I said, a certain kind of you know, understanding that he he gets it. I mean, even the way he looked at it when, he, when they find me. You know, mm-hmm. He doesn't know the complete implications yet. Well, some of the actors that I talked to, they, they really just a bit one-dimensional in the sense that they just were disgusted or creeped out by Psy. And, you know, our assessment of the character is pretty much we read how other people in the film are reacting to Psy, and I always wanted there to be walk on this edge once again of finding him oddly compelling and sympathetic and as well as, you know, frightening. I think the fact that Psy takes pictures of the of the boss's daughter is the thing that allows them to get the search warrant, which I actually researched, because there is a threat management unit in Los Angeles and in Chicago. Oh, right. There may be more now. 
and anything that has that deals with any even indirect threat to children, they they can you know pull out all the stops. Right. So it was sort of a a device to make it believable that they would have a search warrant because they needed we needed to get into this apartment and reveal this the scratched out faces. This was, I think, the last day before we broke for Christmas and New Year's. I think you took off right. on vacation somewhere. I was terrified you were going to get a tan. Come back and be <laughs> sorry. Mr. Blank comes back right back. Come back is like George Hamilton or yeah. something. Sigh's back, and he's had time at Club Med. Well, Robin is an obsessive bicyclist, and... Uh, yeah, it's hard to keep me away from that, but uh, Marsha watched it very carefully, and I did too. I would, if I went outside, it was like an 85 sunblock, basically... I was like, you know, Brando on the island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> I didn't want Robin to be tan, and I didn't want him to be too fit physically, but... No, I can't. Don't worry about that. I stayed right near the the dessert trays, and... This is interesting where you're starting to make up. And it comes up with the initial scam of how to, you know, make contact with them. These are all just one long takes. I mean, there was nothing. You're great in these takes. There's no reason to chop it up or cut to anything else. It's amazing watching Connie because there's such beauty, but it's also just, she pulls off so many things simultaneously. If, you know, this is shocking, but it's also that she has some, you know, just a skosh of foreboding. Skosh of? Scotia foreboding. Foreboding, yeah. We even don't take your, I think you have a blooper where you say, I need a floor. (laughs) And a slip and slide, and a diver's helmet, and (laughs) enough Vaseline to cover a small, well, a small person. I love the lighting here. It's actually lit through those yellow curtains, and we just use the curtains, and Jeff and I realized that curtains actually can make an extremely beautiful filter for things that we could use on purpose in other scenes. In this ideal house. We tried to put a lot of nature in the Yorkins, and there's no nature around Cy or in his life, but there's those big windows where you're always seeing trees and leaves and birds chirping. There's this odd mix here of suspense because the tension is that you're you're worried about what he's going to do, but you're also worried for him to not do anything. It's it's like you don't want him to go too far because you, you... there's a certain amount of sympathy that's been engendered for Sai, even as he's a threat. Clark Gregg is a David Mamet alumnus. He's in a lot of Mamet's films. He's a really great actor. This is interesting in the music with that little childlike bell. That's mm-hmm. when it gets like, oh, man. It's called a chaveste. I love that instrument. Yeah, it's very it's disconcerting. Raymond? Who's Raymond? I was thinking Norman. Oh. Who's Raymond? Raymond was in room 107. <laughs> Be worried if you're walking down the hall and you hear, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, oh. I like that little twist, you know. You think she's just in the dark and you find out that she knows a lot more than mm-hmm. we thought and she's just handling it in her own way. Ladies and gentlemen, oh, here we go. Showtime. Hey. You should talk about what it was like. Wait a minute. What this day? These two days? It was two oh, days of shooting. It's rough for them because every, you know. Get on the bed. 
Well, there's no piece of cake for you either. But the hardest part is, you know, they have to... Every time that we're doing this take, that, you know, you have to basically... They feel vulnerable anyway. And yet you have to make them feel more vulnerable and make them do more horrific things. And I would try and just... We learned that from the other scenes where putting too much pressure on it could snap it, so we... I would try and help kind of make it comfortable, then go back to this, which made it even more disconcerting for them. You know, going back and forth between being, you know, horrific, in a weird way, comforting. You mean off camera or during? Off camera, yeah. yeah, off camera, but then having to go back and be this. It's a real knife, too. I mean, it's not, the, the edge is dulled, but I think it was very intimidating because it's a big piece of chrome with a very sharp point on the end. It wasn't like a rubber knife. I hope it looked fake. This see, we did a lot of, we did more than our share of improvisation and ad-libbing off the script in that scene, which I thought was finally appropriate because all that repression is lifted, and we stuck pretty much to the script for most of the film. But this scene, I think there was a lot more freedom to improvise. Not a lot, but a significant amount. They're usually fixed or very orderly cameras now completely handheld here, and there's a sense of anything could happen. Plus, given what we know later on, it's a thing of the kind of, it's almost like an exorcism for Sai because he's getting back into a, a mind space that he's blocked, basically, and starting to kind of mix back and forth. Yeah, two birds are being killed here. He's dealing with a memory. A memory, and he's regressing back into that, but he's, he's also dealing with the Yorkin, with Will Yorkin's uh, issues here. This was particularly hard, this section, I think. The, the last two sections of the scene was very hard for all the actors. This was basically 13 hours of this for two days. Yeah, it's brutal for, you know... 26 hours of yelling. I mean, for them especially. I, mean, I love that. I love that. That was a great call by the editor, Jeff, of how difficult this is for you. This isn't just easy for you by any means. Mm -mm. That moment in particular was a little... There, that little look. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're one of the, you're an extremely nice man in real life, and I think for you to abuse people in that way comes so, is not, doesn't come at all naturally to you. But, um, you know, we deliberately shot that scene towards the end of the schedule or at the very end of the schedule so that you've been repressing so much emotion as the character for so long that mm -hmm. I thought to finally just let loose would be um, oddly liberating. Now here, you know, obviously deliberately don't know what, what occurred in that room or how far it went. He could be washing up after a, a murder. You spend a lot of time looking at yourself in a mirror in this film, like trying to, f kind of looking at yourself, trying to figure out what and who you are. Right. Like an action figure lying on this bed. It's just been... It's kind of like post-photographic coital experience. It's that bizarre kind of numbness, I think, he has at that point. Well, you know, to expend that kind of energy and emotion for size is probably completely exhausting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Look at that smile. It's like the Mona Lisa, this one. Sai's such a visual guy that even in, you know, he just seems to appreciate images even in the midst of being in peril. 
That little smile there is great. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, that's beautiful. Oh, wait, they're coming to get me. It's kind of snapping back. This was a clever editorial idea of um, of Jeff's, the editor. Uh, Paris, it's the police. We open the door, please. We, we think that they're, they're trapping him in the room, or they're trapping Sai in the room. But we reveal that there's been a time jump that we didn't know about, and Sai's actually already left the room. It's interesting, his idea of, you know, disguise is to take off and leave his glass. Mm-hmm. That'll make him somewhat less recognizable. Well, in his haste. And also vulnerable, too, and also be Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know. I didn't want glasses on his face for that loud, those last shots after he's been captured. No, it's very good to have it. You remember what you did on the first take of this? (laughs) What did I do? This wide shot? Oh, with my, just my pants falling down? No, you took off all your clothes. Oh, well, I do that anyway, just to give you a choice. Just to give a choice for the editor to go like, wait a minute. The first take of that scene where Cy breaks into that medical conference, Robin did it in his underwear just because the crew was kind of tired and morale was low and, and he made it, just made everyone laugh. When in, every, when in doubt, you know, you just go completely furry. <laughs> Plus when we're shooting in here, you're shooting in this kitchen with, you know, steam blowing and about, you know, 25 extras, you know, making a functioning kitchen. Mm. This was a beautiful corridor. We went back and reshot this faster. We, we wrapped for the day, and I felt like we didn't go fast enough. Yeah, we went back and sprinted more. Yeah. Uh-oh. Here we go, boys and girls. This is a very surreal place because this is the M.C. Escher Memorial parking garage. <laughs> you know. All the people having affairs <laughs> are running around. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've got to go. I uh, We shot that running down the spiral and off the back of an ATV with a steady There it is. It's a beautiful location. Once again, we didn't really light it, you know, we just put, plugged in these fluorescents and uh, turned them on. It's always more beautiful. Love this next shot. It's beautiful. It's about as beautiful as a parking garage can get. <laughs> yeah. Originally here, your eyes were going to light up red, like the red eye photos that you described right. earlier, but once again, I thought that was just... Yeah, that would be... Kind of contrivance that wasn't necessary. Took you out of the movie. It's like the director being clever wasn't necessary. Here we find out that Sai didn't, in fact, kill them, or at least we know he didn't kill Maya. For people, I mean, it's once again another twist that that type of... It took it took people a surprise, because I think some people are looking for something so brutal, yeah. and then it isn't. It's just an emotional violence at the end, and it's not a literal physical right. violence, but I like that image too. There was some discussion of not having these images of them alive so that we'd still think up until when Will goes home that they, he might have killed them, but I think it's so important to show that Sai shamed Will, which is really what that scene was about. Here's this image of Sai just surrounded by these father figures, these dark father figures. So there are all these, you know, father figures, very threatening father figures in the film, the boss, the detectives, the cops, the repair guy that size besieged by. The scene in the interrogation room coming up was also, it was the other day that was kind of difficult. It was a 19-hour yeah. marathon in that white room. Right, working through different angles, getting to that point. 
And the pressure for me, I guess, was because it was dealing with that, that ultimate repressed memory of that, you know, of the incident of his own abuse. That sometimes you, you know, you try and get yourself either to, you know, some some state, or to try and, you know, have a catharsis, or to really get to that point. We tried all different things, and in the end, the most disturbing is probably the, the simplest, combined with, you know, connection, non-connection. I mean, we tried it on, on a lot of different levels, mm -hmm. and it helped that day, especially once again, where you said, you know. Let go. I mean, we tried literally because it was getting so tense that you get blocked, and then it becomes so kind of this this weird thing happens facially, also with your whole body, where you're just locked off. Yeah. And then you find you have to have, you have almost like a catharsis, and then what you do is you get an afterglow where it's there, as it is when you see people talking on. If you see them on television, or you see sometimes in documentary footage, or you see people talking about something very horrific or very disturbing and it's only a trace of it's there in them, you mm -hmm. know, because how much they let out or how much, you know, it's the choice of whether it's, a, you know, how present they are with it. Well, I mean, you're going to a very ugly place and I think there's a certain amount of uh, fear around it. If you're going to be truthful in the scene, you're going to have to go right in there it was it was definitely a tough day, and there was something really oppressive about being in that blank space, that empty room all day. Because oh, yes, the scene's only two or three minutes long, but we were in there for 19 hours. Yeah, it was it's Kubrick land when you're into that kind of heavy, heavy, that lighting. Well, I wanted him to be, you know, he's a guy that can relate to things and the machine and his job, and I wanted him to just have none of that, none of that to grab a hold of here. There's literally just nothing in this room. Right. He's forced to face with these issues from his past because there's nothing to hide behind. And you know, there were definitely there were definitely some takes where you were trying to get there, and then this take is where you were just totally in there. Neglect and abuse your children. It was very um, emotionally naked moment here. This reminds me of some of the work that you did in that film, uh, Seize the Day, back in the late '80s. It's so amazing. Well, that's a complete breakdown. That's basically when you get to that point where at the end it's like this, maybe similar in the way where all hope is lost, you know, when there's no exit, no escape, no, there's no barriers anymore, there's nothing to hold on to. I mean, I think that's what's kind of the end of this movie. Is it, it would be the point where a therapist or someone, I mean, I kind of talked about this when I did an interview with Elvis Mitchell, but you get into this very... Uh, where a therapist would say, once you've lost all of that hope and all of his, you know, his, his barriers and his, you know, fantasies and all that stuff, maybe, just maybe, there may be the beginning of finding, you know, a, a life. Well, he examines his own life here in these pictures. He finally makes a grid, just like the wall of photos. He makes a grid of photos, and he's maybe he has finally let go of this fantasy of the Yorkins, and he's going to look at his own life. The, you know, the horribly sad thing is there's nothing there. Right. And the photos don't comfort him. There's no order to it. I mean, he's trying to put order, a continuity. Like with the Yorkins photos, there was a continuity, there yeah. was a timeline, there was, you know, it's even in like the way of trying to make some order out of this. It doesn't make sense. It's, you're gone. He's lost. Yeah. And that's why even that last look is like, there's nothing left anymore, and there's thinking that this will be the one way to do it. And we tried somewhere. I was just desperately putting them down. And like you said, putting them in 
doing the same thing that I've done before, but none of it works. It's lost. It's over. There's, I mean, I do think it's vaguely hopeful that he's now going to look. He's took pictures of his own life, at least in that moment in the hotel room. And this is his surroundings. No one, yeah, and it doesn't no make there. sense. Yeah, and there's no one there. There's not another person. There's nothing, you know. And now it's like, okay, you're. There's no place to go right now. And maybe on that sense, you're right. It's hopeful, but this is a look of saying. Yeah, that that moment there doesn't work when you just you just your shoulders go down again, and you just realize there's nothing for me here. I guess what people relate to, and I mean, uh, is the kind of the in, in the isolation. That no matter where you are, you'll have moments of this where you just think it doesn't it doesn't work. And this is what everybody seems to ask me: Is this, you know? I mean, we put it, you put it in there to kind of go, what could have been, would have been, you know? Well, it's meant to be a big question mark. I mean, right. I, you know, is this in his mind, or is this some actual reality that happened weeks later, where he was embraced by the family? And I certainly don't want to answer that question. I mean, it's deliberately you know, a little enigma at the end of the movie. But it felt right. It's just a, the right image to end on. Yeah, I think it just leaves people like with one last. That's what he wanted, you know. It was so kind of, I mean, I find watching it again that it takes you back to that place again where you finish and you're kind of, you're left with, like you said, an enigma. They've taken a journey in a, in a weird way. They've kind of gotten almost like to his state of mind where they feel kind of slightly lost and you don't explain it to them. A guy walked up to me yesterday. I was in a comic book store and a kind of an interesting looking guy came and said, uh, so I just saw your movie. I said, thank you for going. He said, it, it was it was kind of good. I, went, yeah. I didn't know what to expect. I said, that's the purpose. Mm. And I think people, by the whole film, are kind of, you know, taken on a lot of different places and provoked and disturbed and, you know, unsettled, which is a good thing, I think, at a time when we've been through so much is to kind of look around and, you know, and you can say, look at your own life. No, that's one way. But also just to come out of something kind of provoked is that's that's an ideal thing well, I didn't want I tried to make a movie where you weren't just sort of watching characters having experiences up on the screen and you're sort of passively just watching I wanted to get you engaged so that you were having an experience with the movie you had to get in the middle of it and that a lot of the things weren't neatly wrapped up for you you had to kind of make up your own mind and your own heart about how you felt about these characters and what was going on and there's a lot of questions thrown at you and deliberately not a lot of answers mm -hmm. and it, it seems like people have talked a lot about that it's provoked lengthy discussions it's not the kind of movie oh, love yeah. it or hate it you know yeah, it's both ways and that's and that I think on that way it's a good thing because it gets under the radar and when, when it does that it just doesn't give up the easy response of oh that was nice you don't just come out of like oh cute or you know scary it, and it, yeah and it's not a strictly naturalistic movie by any means it's definitely Oh, has that of, sort of dreamlike kind of texture so that I think it also helps kind of get under your skin or get just jump right into your subconscious or certain elements of it. Plus, I think with a character like Cy, because he's such a cipher that people read into things a lot of times because it's not predictable and there is a kind of a complexity, but it's also unreadable. Yeah. You know, like you said, a guy who seems to be a good man but does something, you know, very violent but yet doesn't pursue the violence completely has a feeling that he is righteous in his way, but also realizes that he's crossed over the boundaries of behavior. 
and at the end is, you know, lost everything that he has to hold on to. And in some ways, he's not only lost it, but he sort of sacrificed it for yeah. the sake of this family. Because to try and shake them out of this kind of everything is wonderful and, you know, say, no, it isn't, here's the reality, and basically be vengeful and inflict it upon them, like you said. And, yeah, in the end, loses himself. Mm. But it sure was an interesting experience. <laughs> so you've said that you don't normally, or you've never done a commentary for a DVD or a Laserdisc. Yeah, number one. I mean, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, I, I know there's people who listen to it who are very much part of it. For me, it's been the kind of the case with this movie that I've been able to do other things because I haven't, uh, it's not looking at me. I could look at this character because it is so different and so kind of, kind of a definite step away from myself that I could watch it. You know, I could be highly clinical about it and be kind of interested and engaged by it. Because, yeah, I was going to ask you, I don't think it's your normal MO to sit and watch your work. I don't. I mean, for the first time when we were making this movie, I could sit back and watch video playback. No, I couldn't do it before because I'd always be struck by something about myself. And, and I guess it's getting to a point in my life where I combination of what the character looked like combined with being able to say, oh, wait a minute, this is someone so unlike myself, but yet, you know, yes, do I have moments of loneliness? Yeah, did I live as an only child? Yes. I didn't have abuse as a kid, but I could relate to, you know, fixating on other things to find a way around it, and it was fascinating that way. That's yeah. why I, when we sat down to watch the premiere, normally I would walk up because, I, you know, seeing it again with a crowd, especially in L.A., could be devastating. Yeah. It's like when you watch a comedy in L.A., it's like people go, interesting concept, they don't laugh. But it's like I could sit back and really kind of take the ride again, watching this psychological study. And I've also gotten an appreciation of photography, and I guess along with that, cinematography, as the power of images. And that kind of thing we touched on briefly of that other area that people don't talk about is that thing that, you know, the power of photos and film, too, to kind of get into that that area of like soul, yeah. that thing of, you know, what it, when it gets under the radar, it touches something much deeper. Yeah. And that's what I can sit there and go, hmm. And that's what made it interesting. There's no resolution. People ask me, what is this movie about? I said, I can't tell you and I don't want to. I can only say, let it have its effect. Mm -hmm. And that's what's been interesting. That's kind of nice to be freed of that. It was freed from the moment we made this movie of number one, not having to look a certain way, number two, not being bound by the same rules of likability, which Anthony Hopkins says is kind of the joy of playing disturbed or villainous characters. Three, that you can make something so different that you won't have to immediately, it can't fall into a one word, you know, or what they say, what do they call it, a concept movie where, yeah, it's a thriller, but there's something... Oh, high, a, high concept. High concept. But it's that idea of, you know, making something that has a lot going on, it's complex, and is not immediately explicable. That's great. Do you think you learned something interesting watching your own work for this? Yeah, I learned that you can make it and just stand beside it and say, I don't have to justify it. Just do it. It was like going to a place that you, you knew was there, but you don't have to either describe it, justify it, try and make it accessible, because it, it just is. And at that point, maybe... I can use the word art, I don't like to because, you know, but it is that thing of because it's personal. A personal expression. Yeah, it's a personal expression. For and other people to yeah, determine Yeah, and you to take it, and if you like it, great. If you don't like it, great. I did it, and it's something that, you know, I've been proud of in that way. Have I learned that? Yeah, it's taking pride in creation and not having to worry about it. Mm. And that's been very freeing. That's why I sat here. <laughs> okay, thanks. You got it.